This week, we're going to be discussing the decisionship, big tech, and the latest on vaccinations. And apparently, whatever that infernal beeping sound was. <laughs> was that? I think that was me. I'm really sorry. I'm really, really sorry. I think that was me. That was me a second. <laughs> Are you microwaving something in the middle of our podcast, Matt? Apparently, um, we, we've now lost uh, special guest, Deputy Director CSI, Matt Kilcoyne, as he is currently too busy microwaving himself some early lunch. <laughs> it was the dishwasher, just... Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Addismith Issues podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh, and I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-host and our head of programs, Daniel Pryor, as well as our deputy director, Matt Kilcoyne. Last week, the ASI released a new paper calling for easier and fairer access to citizenship for all British nationals. It was authored by freelance writer Henry Hill and lawyer Andrew Yong. Matt, the ASI has been promoting greater access to the UK for Hong Kongers for many decades. Uh, you wrote a paper on this last year as well as as a paper going back to the 1980s. Yes, the ASI originally put forward uh, a suggestion that the British Hong Kongers um, and all other parts of the British Commonwealth, but also, but in particular, British Hong Kongers should have uh, rights of residency and work in the United Kingdom when the first suggestion about sovereignty was mooted and a return of sovereignty to uh, to China was mooted in the 1980s. Um, so we suggested both two things. Firstly, that Hong Kongers should have the right to live and work wherever in the UK, but also that we should build a new Hong Kong here in the UK. And this paper looks at the first of those suggestions uh, in a rebooted way for the 2020s. So what I think is fascinating about the paper is that it, it unpacks a bunch of issues when it comes to access to British citizenship. Um, it starts with the idea that citizenship is a good, it's something people um, support access to, particularly for long-term residents of the UK. But the government has put in place a bunch of new barriers to that access to citizenship. Um, in the Hong Konger case, uh, it's thousands of pounds of fees. Um, the other case, and the, the most typical reason for the refusal of citizenship is that someone was not in the UK on the precise date five years earlier that they had put in their application, um, which for one particular kind of Windrush generation um, returnee to the UK meant that they couldn't apply for citizenship because they had been unlawfully deported previously, so they weren't in the UK on the, at that point five years earlier. Um, so it's creating a kind of catch-22 situation um, in the laws there. Uh, I, I think there's kind of a, a moral case about treating these people who the UK has a duty to much better. Yeah, by by law, by duty, by service, there are whole classes of people who have lived their lives and become part of the national community of the United Kingdom, but who are denied the full residence and work rights, which we regularly as British citizens take for granted. And the UK actually has a very long history of being exceptionally open to citizens joining the the UK and the British nationality um, for, for, for centuries, in fact. In fact, there's only been a sort of 11-year period where the UK has not had any free movement uh, with another part of the world, um, and that was between 1962 and 1973, um, what's sort of known as the uh, interregnum in nationality law. Uh, before that, the UK had what was known as uh, citizens of the United Kingdom and colonies, all of whom were equal under the law, um, and whether you were born in uh, in 
Blackburn or, or Bournemouth or whether you're born in Bangladesh or Hong Kong, um, you would been that you were a citizen of the UK and colonies, and so you had full residence and work rights. Um, after that, we we looked at the United Kingdom became a lot more sort of worried about migration, a lot more worried about culture, a lot more uh, a lot more racism's crept into the politics of the United Kingdom, taste based discrimination, and worries about the color of people's skins and cultural attitudes to various uh, integration questions, and so restrictions were brought in on who could come, uh, how long they could stay, how long they could work for. Um, and so various bits of, of people's rights were removed. And as, pe- and as of course, countries left uh, the UK's sphere of influence, their, their rights were restricted as well. Um, and then we've also looked at the part, like then in the sort of noughties, the UK expanded out quite rapidly, free movement again into Europe. Um, countries which had, had not had a long historical link, didn't have the same linguistic link or legal history link, um, and where the sort of impetus for UK citizens to go abroad was not as equal to citizens from those countries coming to the UK, and free movement again fell out of favour. Um, we're back in that position again, where actually the UK is looking to expand some parts of uh, rights to move to the UK. Um, and one of the ones which is most popular are ones where people have long-running historical links, familial links, linguistic links, and and a sense of duty to do right by those countries. And Hong Kong is one of those really obvious ones. Um, the wind rush brought a whole uh, bunch of, um, of of soul searching amongst uh, both British citizens, but also parliamentarians, about our rights and responsibilities to those people. Um, but also ex-military service personnel who have worked and served Her Majesty and the King and the and the country um, with in honour, uh, and who deserve the right maybe to to live and work here. Um, and have their families live and work here as well. Mm. And I think what's quite powerful about the paper is it goes through a number of different case studies where the system um, has worked against what most people might consider to be kind of fair and reasonable. Um, there's a talks of a Fijian British Army veteran who basically didn't quite apply at the right moment uh, for their citizenship and then has ended up um, basically running out of money and then, and then can't afford... To, to go ahead with with the process, um, talks about another case where um, someone who was uh, Queen's Chinese, who was kind of a, a Malaysian um, person with kind of a residual right to a British nationality, um, came to the UK but was given bad advice by their migration lawyer to um, rescind their Malaysian citizenship, which meant that they lost their right to apply for British citizenship, and as as a consequence, are left stateless because they can't go back to Malaysia because they're no longer considered Malaysian citizens. Uh, but the UK is refusing um, to accept them as citizens. So they're, they're stuck in the UK and there's uh, apparently thousands of people in this very unfortunate situation um, who can't really go anywhere and they can't technically work in the UK, uh, but they can't, nor can they, they leave the UK. And I think that the thrust of the paper is, is creating kind of a fairer system around it. Um, Daniel, you've, you've done quite a lot of work in the immigration space over the years and kind of making the case for migration. Um, how do you think that kind of fits into this this issue is being discussed in this paper in particular? Yeah, so for me, the the most egregious issue that the paper raises is these application fees. And you mentioned the case of the, the Fijian man who simply run, ran out of money and wasn't able to continue his application. I think what is so kind of offensive about the application fees for these in-country immigration applications is that they've gone up 
dramatically over the past few decades. And they've gone up especially quickly um, post the kind of introduction of the so-called hostile environment. Um, and these fees do not match or mirror or have any relationship to the kind of associated processing costs that the Home Office has to take on with these applications. In fact, the processing costs have, in a rare case of government competency, competency uh, gone down over the past few years that we have the data for. Um, I think we have the kind of data from 2016, and they started off cost around £430 to uh, process one of these applications. And closer to present day, it's gone around to about 200 and Forty pounds or something like that. So they've gone down, but over the same period, they've skyrocketed. Um, that the actual fees that they charge people from, um, you know, one hundred and fifty pounds, which roughly was, uh, you know, uh, equivalent to or similar to the the cost of processing the fee for the government, uh, and now in present day, they're around to two thousand three hundred, two thousand four hundred pounds, um, and. This, to me, is just very clearly a way of trying to reduce immigration through the back door rather than, um, you know, owning particular policies that are explicitly aimed at trying to, to reduce the amount of um, people applying for British citizenship. They're going to do it simply through um, this sort of very untransparent means of increasing the application fees. Uh, and, of course, they make you know, they get people get charged the same if they're dependents and also applying, despite the fact that the marginal cost of these applications is significantly less to process. So there's no kind of bureaucratic justification. So fees are not this sort of like um, apolitical system. They are designed to try and reduce the number of people. And when that is used against people who have a claim to British citizenship and like a moral claim to, to British citizenship that we saw with congas with windrush and both ex-service personnel it really sticks in the crawl for a lot of people that you're being charged to become british when you're already seen as being british by the people who are here right there's also a, a kind of a popular case for this as well you look at a lot of the opinion polling around uh, immigration fees and in general people think that they're too high um by a margin of, of around kind of three to one compared to those who think that they're too low. But I think even that doesn't tell the full story, because if you break down um, and ask people about specific groups of immigrants, even ones that traditionally people tend to be a bit more skeptical of, so say immigrants that earn less than £30,000 a year, the kind of more um, quote-unquote low-skilled immigrants that, that come here, once you break down into specific groups, you actually find that support for, for cutting these immigration fees rises. So two-thirds of people want to cut um, the immigration fees faced by uh, people who earn less than £30,000 a year. So it's not even a kind of popular anti-migration policy. It's just, frankly, you know, stupid. It, it makes absolutely no sense from a, a political or a economic or, you know, from a humanitarian perspective either. Mm, and, it's, and the paper itself focuses more specifically on the issue of people applying for indefinite leave to remain. But there's still the, this ongoing issue of just the... Um, increasing costs of um, applying for just general kind of immigration to the UK and this ratcheting up of the healthcare surcharge over recent years. You now pay hundreds of pounds for each additional year um, you come over to the UK and, and that, as Matt was saying, is, is kind of designed to discourage immigration. It doesn't really connect very well to the costs of actually running the NHS because um, these, most of these kind of immigrants, particularly if you're coming over on a kind of work visa, going to be paying taxes and contributing to the NHS 
and you're more likely to be younger and of working age and therefore probably not taking that much out of the system either. So it, it doesn't and, really and you, make much that's sense. you, isn't it, Matt? Kind of revenue raising. It is literally me. I, I may have a personal <laughs> stake in the fact that I've had to pay thousands of dollars on, on these fees. Um, and so was our, our American colleague Morgan and, and so are thousands of other people like us. And I think it's worth noting that this is, you know, the government likes to talk about not increasing burdens on business and encouraging hiring and encouraging uh, businesses to grow. I mean, in order for businesses to grow, they often need uh, people who have skills who don't necessarily reside in the UK and they want to be able to tap into global talent and, and encourage people to come over to Britain to, to work. Um, but these kind of surcharges, these fees really uh, discourage that and make it very expensive for businesses. Um, other on top of that, that it, it's just increasing expensive um, for particularly young people, for students, for people who want to take up the youth mobility visa, which kind of allows people from our Commonwealth countries to, to come over to two, for two years to the UK if they're aged under 30. And that's something a lot of young Australians have done, a lot, a lot of young New Zealanders have done. Um, but if you pull out the data on that, it, it's in reducing numbers um, because it's just become so disproportionately expensive uh, as a True. result of these I mean, immigration I... charges. I think it's simpler than that as well, isn't it? Like we we sit there and we say the numbers and that these values we attach to people's lives, um, but it it really comes down to the fact to a sort of a, a pratchett uh, response that we're treating people as things, and when we say that we're going to charge the like an increase in fees because we want to get the numbers down to the tens of thousands, you're immediately reducing individuals down to a statistic. And you're immediately removing all these people with their hopes and dreams, with their lives here, with their jobs here, who are trying to change their stars, who are invested in communities, running parent-teacher associations, charity events, who are your friends in the office. Um, they're being reduced to a series of forms, a bureaucracy, um, run out of Whitehall, often with you know incredibly sort of dark sensibilities that they just don't care about the lives that these people are living. Um, and that's and that is that is sem- sem- semi sinful. Um, treating people as things is what sin is in Pratchett's universe, and it's like and it and it's really quite an important it's quite an important black and white issue. Um, if you're not willing to take nuance, and if you're not willing to understand particular circumstances, and you're just going to try and force everybody through a box, and then you're trying to use fees to control that, then shockingly people will fall through the cracks, and a lot of the injustices that people feel. In, and uh, which highlighted in Henry and Andrew's paper um, come about because of the way in which these people have been treated as objects um, rather than ends in and of themselves. Yeah, I, I think you're kind of you're, you're speaking to one of the the two ways that people tend to change their minds about um, immigration policy more broadly, and that the first is is this kind of I mean, this is why the case studies in the paper are so powerful is that. You can relate to these individual human stories of people who have contributed a lot, both you know, in, in social terms, not just in economic terms, to, to this country. They may have served in the armed forces, for example. Um, they they may have a, a long-standing connection to this country through their um, through their family or their ancestry, etc. Uh, and they're ultimately being denied something that's rightfully owed to them. And I think that resonates with a lot of people, and that's why you see the polling on these sort of issues being. Being actually fairly sympathetic, despite this idea that we're still a, a very anti-immigration country, um, that doesn't seem to be true when you when you look at um, the polling on a lot of these issues. Uh, and the second way, and one that, that we've talked about, is the more and I'm sorry, um, 
Matthew Lesh, the more soulless utilitarian way, is that if you look at the sort of economic effects of immigration, the things that you were mentioning a second ago about needing more innovators to, to regrow our economy post-COVID, um, then, you know, ultimately people are, are willing to change their minds when presented with the latest economic research on the effects of migration as well. So I, I think it's not a, a kind of either-or question here. It's a combination of those individual stories of injustice and also the broader kind of macro-level points about migration being useful to, to boost our, our well-being, our standard of life and, and the world we live in. Well, on that note about how we can make the world a better place, particularly for immigrants like myself, let's move on to another controversial topic, the criticism of big tech. So we've seen the Conservative MP, uh, Tobias Elwood, recently writing a piece arguing that the world would be better off if Google, Facebook, Amazon and Twitter simply did not exist. They simply disappeared into the ether. He even went so far as to call this one of the priorities of our age, uh, erasing perhaps even the memories of Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Twitter from our uh, collective minds. Matthew uh, Lesh, why has technology suddenly become a nuisance for people rather than this great liberator that it's been seen as in the past? Yeah, I I think there was a lot of techno-optimism that pervade the online space, and particularly even these companies, uh, for, for a really long period of time. I mean, I, I think back to the Arab Spring as, as a prime example of this. It seemed like Western governments and, and Western progressives were happy enough when social media was being used in order to topple um, totalitarian regimes in the Middle East. And I, I think that's something we should all celebrate. And I think that showed the power of these tools as something that people can use to express ideas um, that might not necessarily be those that people in power want to be expressed. Um, what we've happened since then is this, is a big kind of sea change in the, in the way people see technology. I think there's a bunch of different things going on. I think there's a general kind of moral panic about um, social media companies that really stems from uh, the experience in 2016 and all these claims about disinformation and misinformation that led to the elections of, of Donald Trump or Brexit, um, at least according to the critics of those particular um, political choices. Um, and, I, and I think that's a very kind of disappointing approach because rather than trying to deal with the, the underlying issues that, that led to millions upon millions of people to vote against um, what the the existing establishment was recommending uh, when it came to Trump or when it came to Brexit, um, they, they very much wanted to blame it on people being tricked, um, even when the evidence wasn't necessarily there to support that. And you've kind of got that combined together with a more traditional, please want something of the kids, um, kind of approach to technology. Uh, and then and on top of that, you've got this sense in which um, Amazon is a successful company and they're taking away um, a lot of market position from traditional bricks and mortar retail uh, and therefore the, the kind of communities is suffering. Now, I think that's ridiculous because obviously people are choosing where they shop and are shopping for Amazon because it's convenient. And we've seen that so much over the last year. It seems quite ridiculous to say, Uh, These companies that have kept us um, connected to each other during a global pandemic have ensured that goods are delivered to our door, have kept us entertained, um, should be the ones on the chopping block. It's just totally mind-boggling. The speed with which the speed with which my eyes rolled into the back of my head reading Tobias Elwood's piece at the weekend 
um, has left me. I didn't. I didn't know whiplash could happen for eyes, but it has left me. It has left me blind. Um, it has left me blind as as he is blind to the benefits of technology and the fact that we have all Yay. lived throughout this pandemic um, totally reliant, but not just reliant, like per, like going out of our way to benefit from uh, the incredible. Uh, like services and goods that online companies provide. These are companies who were ahead of every government in the world in taking COVID-19 seriously. There were supermarkets and Amazon who kept supply chains running throughout that meant sure that, that that make sure that you can get things delivered to your home within the day so that if you're quarantining, you have food, that if you need medicines, that you can get it through to the through the door. Um, that have that have ensured that we haven't just had to shut the entirety of the economy, but that many of us have been able to work. Many of us in privileged positions have been able to work. And even MPs like Tobias Elwood have been able to do what many people consider to be, let's be honest, a superfluous job, um, are able to do it with with aplomb and keep democracy running. Um, but, that, but that kind of piece, it was populism at its very worst. It was Luddite uh, rhetoric that was designed to inflame, designed to get a reaction. And the reaction that it got was really just one of, um, frankly, and also very positively, um, you know, dis despair and disdain from, from everybody else who read it. Um, the, world is, the world is a better place because we have technology. It is a better place because we're able to access the goods and services we want when we want them. I, I think it's, it, it's probably worth unpacking more specifically what some of his arguments are. Because he, he very much... Um, focuses on the kind of antitrust argument. Um, but then by saying that we should replace these California-based giants, it's almost a kind of xenophobic undertone because they're based in California, because Britain hasn't been as successful at creating these companies, um, that there's something kind of evil and wrong about them and, and the, the government is, is right to, to try to go after them. Yeah, I mean, he definitely does that, right? It's it's that the, these firms are foreign. These firms are foreign. That that they're, they're, they're in a different place. They they're not British success stories, so they don't deserve to be cheered. And that's just rubbish, right? Like we know that there are thousands of employees of Google and Facebook in the UK. That there are thousands more freelancers who are, who supply goods and services to these firms. Amazon, who has a large base here in the UK as well, and other other uh, you know other smaller firms that were doing the same thing, whether that's you know um, wine app who deliver wine to your door within in central London within an hour, whether that's uh, the pharmacy groups that are doing that here, whether that is um, you know, Bloom and Wild delivering flowers or whatever, they're all doing online services deliveries to you, um, which apparently he's willing he he thinks are not acceptable, but it's the it's the fact that like. The, there are real people doing real jobs, solving real problems that people have, and they're getting value for that. Um, and that, like, and then in return, we're giving those companies that provides that value with some profit. It is the very basis of the of the free market economy. It is the very basis of the of the position of free market capitalism that his party purports to to promote. Um, and yeah, so it was just it was just one of those pieces that if you read it. You should you should you should read it and then and like enjoy it, savor it as the exact opposite of what <laughs> uh, an MP in his position should be saying. Um, and it's what it really does, of course, is it opens the space on the left for bigger criticism, more control, um, and, and more opprobrium towards these firms who are delivering, you know, the goods. It's it's what's fascinating about it is it's not really clear what he wants. So he wants to regulate away these supposed monopolies. 
um, and magically create a, a well, you know, the conclusion of the piece is why couldn't Britain have a search engine of its own or a British Facebook? I mean, the answer to that question is, of course, many people have tried, uh, of course, to create alternative search engines and alternative social media networks. The reason why they're successful is because they provide excellent products. And these companies are some of the most innovative and biggest investors in research and development. So he wants to somehow regulate these existing companies out of existence um, and just presume that an alternative will show up that is of an equal quality, uh, that is something that the people want and need. Um, and he then throws in every other evil from tech companies, you know, that same kind of thing about um, anti-democratic spread of misinformation and, you know, stolen news, fake and stolen news. I don't even know what stolen news is, to be honest. It's, it's, you've, missed, you've missed the news. You've got to steal the news. <laughs> you've lost the news. <laughs> lost the news. Uh, in all seriousness, it's just, it's just totally Saturday. And it's, it's kind of disappointing that, you know, this is the thinking man's MP. Uh, you know, he's, Tobias Elwood, I think it was something he said relatively recently that we all agreed about, which was um, uh, bringing in uh, British summertime a little bit earlier. And, and our, our boss Eamon's written about um, potentially a British summertime all year round. So, because no, Tobias Elwood is not always wrong about everything, but he's certainly not right about this. No, he, but like the, 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 there is a thing called there is a thing called like you know comparative advantage, and he he sits on the defense select committee, and he does a very good job of checking the government's defense policy. And I would just like him maybe to spend more time on that, considering we know that there are large scale geopolitical threats, um, and a lot of money that has to be spent on upgrading the UK's armed forces and integrating it with the D10 countries. Um, maybe a little more time on that, which will include some technology that he will have to buy. You know, there will be some tech that he should be checking in on. Um, and a little less time bemoaning the fact that people watch Netflix and buy goods on Amazon. There's also one of the other points that he raises, which kind of sounds libertarian-ish at first, but really is the complete opposite. He complains about the power that the big tech companies have in terms of holding data about us. This is a concern that, that actually comes up from colleagues on the kind of civil libertarian side of, of politics, that while these companies know everything about us, they know our age, our date of birth, our spending habits, etc. And that's really bad. Um, that's his kind of conclusion. Um, and he complains that they won't even give us a share of the profits in um, using that data. Of course, many of these companies, your, your Facebooks, for example, your Twitters are a free service. So I don't know you know what you can what you can complain about in terms of not giving a share of the profits. We're getting them for free instead of actually having to pay for them. But it's one of the things where you look at studies of, of that try to estimate how much people would be willing to pay for for these sort of services, and actually people would be willing to pay a, a fair bit for for Facebook. But they they have the benefit of being able to to do that for free through trading their data with it. So I, I kind of worry that this is something that, that has a lot of resonance, not just with the kind of anti-tech classic conservative stance, but also with some who, who have libertarian leanings. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that are, Matt. Well, I mean, ultimately, people are choosing to, to give this, this data. I don't necessarily have all that data on absolutely everyone. I think it's a great exaggeration. But they use that to provide products to people. They use that to provide relevant advertising. I think it's actually a good thing that rather than having to sit through TV advertising that most of which is for cars that I'm never going to buy or not that I just seen in or all these products that I'm not that keen on. I get very targeted ads focused on things that I want. So, and I don't think the, the data they gather is is specific to and useful to them and the services they're providing. It's not like 
we have any any ownership of it. And the other big argument we're having at, at the moment um, in Australia is about this idea and very much pushed by the likes of Rupert Murdoch um, that tech companies should be paying money in order to link to the content of news providers. And that's something that Tobias brings up in, in his article as well. And even that's kind of a, just conceptually such a ridiculous idea. Um, the tech companies, sorry, I should say, the news sites, uh, the news websites benefit hugely from the fact that they're linked to from Facebook, from Twitter, from Google, and that people find their content. Um, the, the beneficiary of a link is is the, the site at the other end of the link. The, the beneficiary is not the person who's doing the linking to. And it's this ridiculous idea that that should somehow be reversed, that for some reason, because Google is really doing a favor to news websites, that they should have to pay uh, Google should have to pay um, news websites to link to their content. Now, ultimately, the, the real complaint here is the fact that um, the, the digital websites have um, really screwed up the traditional business model of newspapers, which was very much focused on classified ads and that, and advertising um, that was broad-based. And because people have a better product to use advertising on and, and there's there's much more options um, for for people to do advertising, and they're not putting as much into newspapers. Um, quite frankly, that's newspapers' problem. That's that's not the digital company's fault. Uh, that the business model of newspapers is sadly isn't up to scratch um, necessarily for the twenty first century. And they have to find ways to monetize their content, which many, in fairness, many papers are doing. Um, it just seems trying to use regulation and tax in order to take money from a successful industry to give it to a less successful industry is a very backwards-looking idea rather than expecting the unsuccessful, the unsuccessful industry to, to actually provide a product that people want to buy um, and, and advertise to and, and succeed on their own two feet. In. Right. It seems like the traditional news media wants to have their cake and eat it here. They want to have the benefit of being linked to by these news indexing services, but then they also want those news indexing services to pay for the privilege of um, of linking to them and to me as you've explained that that seems ridiculous but that's very much not the only example of uh, competitors to these digital companies trying to use regulation and taxation to give themselves an advantage uh, at the expense of the the big tech companies we've seen calls uh, this week from various retailers for an online sales tax in the UK to replicate the apparent cost of business rates. Do you think that the likes of uh, Tesco are uh, right to argue for this? I imagine the answer is on a postcard. Again, again, Daniel, because they've done this every year for the past three years. This is not a new call. Um, the only thing that's new about this one is that Tesco um, haven't put a percentage this year on how much they think the online sales tax should be. Um, so it was 2% last year to fund a 20% reduction in business rates. Um, shockingly, oddly enough, Tesco has a lot of in-store space, uh, so retail space. They have they do, they uh, invested hugely in small stores on high streets uh, in order to get the after-hours trade. So people leaving the office, um, just picking up a quick ready meal on their way home, as well as the sandwich trade at lunchtime. Um, they took on the sort of model that Pret and also MS Food. Developed. So they, it, having a stores on every corner so that people always were able to get a Tesco sandwich and were therefore sort of semi-captive uh, to buying Tesco food. Um, that obviously has not been a great business model this past 12 months because <laughs> no one is in the city centres because the UK has, a, has, a, like, has spent decades moving everybody out of city centres into the suburbs. 
Tesco, of course, also has huge um, out-of-town shopping centers, which benefited really well in the 90s and early noughties uh, from not paying high street business rates. Uh, for the first three years, whenever they open an out-of-town shopping center, um, that the business rates on that site will be lower than the high street rates that they would be paying if they were a normal store, right? The green grocers, the butchers, and so on, uh, which used to be on the sort of premium site. But whenever, and they, and they use their sort of, you know, regular supply, regular surety um, to say, and regular quality to say to, to customers that we are offering a service that you can trust and everything's under one roof. You won't have to go from store to store to store. And people did that, right? So, they, so the supermarkets uh, are responsible for a wave of high street stores going bust because people realized they could get more value from going to the supermarket and the out-of-town topping center. Um, and so, but now they're going, oh, we're being undercut by online players who don't need the physical space at all, just a warehouse space on an industrial sense, on an industrial site. And often, you know, just one large site serving whole areas rather than uh, supermarkets which serve one town or, you know, one city or one side of a city or so on. Um, and now they're crying foul and demanding extra taxes. And we should listen to the supermarket's arguments of the early noughties and, early and late 90s and, and repeat them right back at them um, and say, look, we're not surprised that you want to put punitive taxes on your competitors. That's exactly what business does. Um, but we should be very wary of any politician that gives way to the lobbying efforts of these, these large corporates because the contrivance is to raise prices. It's a conspiracy against the public. Um, and that's exactly what um, <laughs> Adam Smith warned against in 1776. Yeah, it's very much a case of innovation for me, but not for the, if you look at the history, as you mentioned, of the um, the supermarket chains lobbying against kind of specific targeted regulation and taxation measures for them uh, a decade ago, and now arguing the exact opposite. I'm sorry, but that's the way that a dynamic free market economy works. And actually, if we didn't have these sort of new innovative business models that the big tech companies are bringing along, then this pandemic would have been even more difficult to deal with and to bear. And we should be very thankful for it rather than slapping an extra tax on progress and innovation. Yeah, and the answer, of course, is more liberalization on the other side, right? We have to have it so that, like, you, we should make it easier so that town centers and city centers are lived in again, so that there are captive populations that people actually, you know, that want to pop to the shop or want to go to the restaurant or whatever, rather than are forced to by being paid, by being forced to pay more at the till uh, for the alternative. That's rent seeking, whereas the other one is a liberal approach. I suppose, Matt, the question is, right, in the UK, this has really come about because of the fact that we're so far um, along the curve of people moving online. It was about 16% prior to the pandemic. It's nearly a third of goods now bought during the pandemic online. Um, like in Australia, that's not quite the same, right? Like the, the, the amount of people that buy online um, is much less um, and so this debate is yet to be had in Australia, um, but it's coming, right? I, I presume at some point you're going to have exactly the same. And how is how is the how is the view, I suppose, from over there? <laughs> I mean, there's been a, a much slower move to online in Australia. I think the key kind of physical restraint and difference is the fact that um, 
Australia is a much bigger place and shipping takes a lot longer. You just don't have next day shipping. But but Amazon has certainly set up in Australia in the last couple of years and they're, they're trying to build the online space. Um, and there are inevitably going to be complaints from bricks and mortar retail. And, and they're, they're no doubt particularly during the pandemic when a lot of shops and, and restaurants were shut down, there was a lot more online trading. So I think it's kind of things are heading in the same direction in Australia um, as they are in the UK. It's just a bit further back in the bay. My only broader thought, though, on the UK is the fact that we should potentially be a little bit sympathetic in terms of when it comes to business rates during the pandemic. Um, I don't buy the broader argument for reducing business rates for the reason we know, which is that business rates um, inevitably are a tax that actually tend to more so fall on the landlord. Um, uh, sorry, I'm going to result... Let me start again. Um, look, look, as we know, business rates inevitably... Um, are going to fall into part of the rent. So if business rates go down over time, we can expect landlords to put up the rent um, to cover whatever the business rate cost was. So there's not going to be a huge benefit to businesses. But I think in the short run, when businesses don't have revenue, uh, there is a a strong case for continuing the pause in business rates um, because of the fact that um, these businesses are struggling. And if we want them to be able to continue after the pandemic, when they can trade again, I mean, these are, these are businesses that are currently physically shut. So it makes total sense yeah, to absolutely. give, and, and by government response, so it makes total sense to give people a reprieve from the costs of government when we know that it's the government that's restricting their ability to raise revenue. Um, and so, yeah, business rates right now just seems like a no-brainer, keep it off. Um, but like, as we say, I think the thing that's going to be really interesting is that the premium of the high street looks like it's gone for now. And so there's a question about you know, should there be another review, considering the review came in just like at the height of the economic activity, so rates are really high right now. Um, if if we expect the, the whole of the society to change and shift away from high, uh, from working in, in city centres and town centres, um, then there's a question about whether the rates are the right level again, and also about rents being the right level. We're seeing rents fall um, across the UK um, or remain the same for corporates. And so... I think there's like a, there's got to be a wholesale review, and the government should take part in that review as well. Like the cost it puts on people, um, just in the same way that landlords have to review the cost they put on people. Um, and I think like that's a reasonable place, uh, considering we think that the world has changed semi considerably, at least in the short to medium term. Yeah, I think to to kind of sum up the points here, the way to level the playing field is not through penalizing the companies that are innovating in the technology space, but it's to make it easier for those traditional bricks and mortar places to compete through more liberal and and free market methods. But I think it's time now to move on to our final section of the podcast on vaccination and so-called jabs amnesty. The UK's vaccination program is continuing at full speed ahead as undocumented migrants are now going to be allowed to get an amnesty for their jab and a hotel quarantine is set to begin in the UK. But questions remain about the effectiveness of the vaccines on the South African variant of the COVID-19 virus. We spoke last week about how vaccinations are kind of shining light for the government, one of the few areas I'd argue that they're actually being quite effective in. Um, how important is this decision to grant immunity for unlawful migrants and have this jabs amnesty? It's incredibly important because we're not protected until we're all protected on COVID. The, the way in which the coronavirus 
consequences of this nature develop is that they can evolve very quickly um, when there's high levels of replication. And there's high levels of replication when there's a large amount of spread in the general population. And so uh, the, the aim is to ensure that every adult or every person who's likely to end up with a large amount of viral production, um, including, uh, as, as that is, people who are undocumented, because the virus doesn't care whether you're here legally or here not legally. Um, and of course, if you're here illegally, you're not able to access all of those, um, all of the things like social social benefits and and, and wage uh, subsidy that allow you to, uh, to, to not go out for work. So you are actually exposed to more human interaction. So you're more likely to end up with the virus. So therefore you're more likely to end up replicating the virus. And therefore you're more likely to end up with a new evolution of a new variant, um, which as in the case of the Kent variant um, is more deadly and more transmissible. Um, and so you you want to have as little risk of that as possible. And so having an amnesty towards people who aren't here uh, legally, um, enabling them to get healthcare, enabling them to get vaccinated is actually in the best in best benefits of all of us. And in fact, at a minimal cost, it's one of the best spends the UK government could ever do. Um, and it sort of fits within a broader piece about what Boris, the columnist, used to put out there when he would write on liberal matters for the Daily Telegraph <laughs> uh, and the Sunday Telegraph. Um, and it's nice to see that translate into Boris, the prime minister. Um, it's an idea that we put out there in winning the peace of people last year. And, and it's very, very good to see it make it into government policy potentially. Yeah, I think your, your point, especially about the fact that a lot of um, illegal migrants work in the kind of shadow economy and they don't have access to the sort of social security benefits and welfare and things um, that the government is upping and, and already providing during this crisis is really important because ultimately this is a population that is at higher risk of contracting and therefore spreading the virus because they don't have the the option of staying at home um, and surviving on, on social security, uh, welfare payments, etc. They have to go out and work because they're here illegally or they're undocumented or the, for whatever reason they don't have access. So this will definitely have a disproportionate effect. The question is also in terms of numbers, though, and there's been so many different estimates of, of how many people this jabs amnesty will actually reach over the years. It's impossible to arrive on on anything close to a, a good approximation. I mean, even the respected um, Oxford Migration Observatory, they looked at a kind of survey of estimates over the past 10 years or so, and their um, low-end estimate is around 120,000 um, illegal migrants in the UK, their high-end estimate is close to 1.2 million. So we're looking at um, a very big difference in magnitude for, for how many people this could affect. If it turns out that actually those higher-end estimates are closer to reality, then then this could have an absolutely huge impact in helping to, um, to fight the spread of the virus. So yeah, as you say, a, a really kind of simple and, and cost-effective policy here that's going to do a lot to help in the UK's fight against COVID. Um, you mentioned the, the kind of the liberal columnist, Boris, would you say this is, this is kind of going to be the high watermark of, uh, of sensible immigration policy for this government? Or actually, could it be heralding uh, or a prelude to more radical reforms like a, a general amnesty for, um, for illegal migrants that, that may actually prove to be more of an incentive to get them to, to come forward and get the vaccine? Um... <laughs> 
<laughs> I the honest I'm being too optimistic Daniel, there, aren't I? <laughs> I think I think you might be being slightly optimistic there. Uh, ha- the, the, there is a there is a general consensus among conservative politicians that um, that we have legal roots into the UK that legal roots matter uh, and that you don't want to be seen to be promoting actions which could be regarded as a pull factor. Now I don't believe that they're a pull factor and I don't think that you do either but like that that's the sort of generalistic belief that exists. Um, there will be scope for liberalisation of, of some migration laws, though, because the UK is ongoing, has ongoing free trade agreements with other countries, including um, Australia and New Zealand and Canada and America and Japan and South Korea, but also up and coming um, India, all of which will include mobility for study, mobility for work. Um, and so there will be some scope for liberal migration methods. I'm not sure... Um, whether that will apply to a general amnesty um, as much as I or you might want them. Yeah, I think this is probably more than anything else a reflection of just how seriously focused the government is on vaccinating the population and, and tackling the pandemic. And I think it, in that sense, it, it perhaps might not be the best news, uh, Daniel, in, in terms of the migration front when it comes to free migration, but it's certainly excellent news when it comes to the vaccination front, which is they're literally willing to leave no stone unturned and do something that typically might make this government feel uncomfortable, which is to give a, a certain right uh, to unlawful and undocumented migrants um, that they would not normally have, which is which is access to UK healthcare, because they understand just the absolute importance of vaccinating the population in order to overcome the challenge. Uh, that, that is COVID-19. And we've also seen, uh, as mentioned in the introduction to the section, the development of hotel quarantines in the UK. And they're kind of being designed in response to this uh, this well-publicised risk of mutations um, and those mutations starting to undermine the UK's vaccination programme, potentially sending us back to square one. Uh, would you be as worried as, uh, as the government is about these mutations, Matthew Lesh? And, and do you think we are actually heading back to square one here, that they risk undermining everything that we've achieved so far? Look, I'm not sure we're quite heading back to square one just yet, but I, I do think that the government's hotel quarantine policy, I think we've discussed this already a little bit uh, on, a, on a previous podcast, is very much inadequate to the task. Um, it, it's, it's not going to work in terms of stopping the risk of mutations, including these mutations, such as the South African one, the Brazilian one, coming in via a third country and they're going to unfortunately need to introduce a much broader program of, of hotel quarantine. And we've got to hope that it's not too late to do that uh, because it, it might be too late in the sense that it's already in the country, it's already spreading, or that there could be another mutation that is um, doesn't work against the, the vaccine that, that could spread relatively quickly, in which case you're not quite back to square one because we're going to be much better at developing much quicker vaccine um, updates that, you, that don't necessarily in the same way we do a new flu vaccine every year, we're probably going to be doing new COVID vaccines um, for quite some time in order to, to tackle uh, the, the new mutated strains of COVID. Uh, I know there was a lot of concern in particular about uh, the South African vaccine and, and the Oxford jab. Um, that was a study that suggested that potentially it might have only a 10% effectiveness um, for stopping people from getting a mild cases of COVID. Um, and there's two things to think about there. One, um, it was a very small study with not a lot of statistical power. 
uh, and means that there's a lot of uncertainty about its effectiveness. And, and two, that the study was only on young people, um, none of whom who either had the vaccine or didn't have the vaccine got severe cases. So it's still possible the um, Oxford jab, as it currently is, could still work against the South African regime, um, South African um, mutation. Uh, but it's I'd love it if it could work against the South African UK. regime as well. It could also work against the, these, <laughs> these vaccines are, are, are total miracles. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'll stop the, uh, the the seizure of private property by the South African regime <laughs> and also you know, maybe sort out that energy crisis. <laughs> I think we, we've got to be fairly optimistic about how, how vaccines will be able to be developed um, against mutations as well. We've seen various estimates from the, the main players here saying it could be as little as six to, to ten months in some cases. And I mean, I think now that we've got the track record of vaccine development already in place, we're not going to have as many naysayers um, laughing at Matt Hancock as they, they did previously for focusing on, on new vaccine development. So certainly, as you say, uh, Lesh, I think not back to square one by any means. But there, there is this question about the hotel quarantines not being effective. Um, they're going to apply to arrivals from 33 countries, but um, there's so many holes in, in this regime, isn't there? The, the government hasn't really got their compromise right. Yeah, I mean, Matt Lesh is stuck in, Matt Lesh is stuck in Australia for the time being. Um, Australia, of course, not on the red list, so he'll, he should be able to fly back at some point to the UK. Um, don't, don't fear, listeners. However, the, uh. <laughs> in terms of, like, obviously, I, I mean, I just watched um, an Instagram, like, influencer who is based in the United States, he lives in New York with his other half. They flew out to Spain. Um, so New York's having another outbreak. He flew out to Spain, which is also having an outbreak. That day that he arrived, he went out for coffee. Then he went to meet his 92-year-old grandmother, who had not been vaccinated. She got vaccinated a week later, because that was in another story. He then went up from Madrid up to the Basque <laughs> country, where he met his other half's parents. And then he went back down to Madrid, met his grandparent, his my grandmother again, the day that she got the vaccine. So the day she has absolutely no protection. And then uh, then flew out to Colombia and has gone to three places in Colombia already, is presumably off to the United States again. Now, we know that Colombia is immediately, you know, a red list country. So anybody flying from Colombia to the UK would have to quarantine. Um, if they've been in Colombia in the past 10 days, they would have to quarantine. But if he went back to the United States... And after 10 days, then flew from the United States to the UK, um, like, or, or even, you know, flew to, to Spain and then flew from Spain to the UK uh, after 10 days, he wouldn't have to put it on the form. He wouldn't have to quarantine because Spain's not on the red list. But that's not within the infection period. The infection period is more than 14 days for some people and often for super spreaders. At least that's the, the suggestion that's coming out of Taiwan who, is, who, who, are, who are picking up on this cases via quarantine and that is, and so it's completely useless because we're going to have these kind of people who who are traveling and jet setting around the world who are spreading it one to the other in massive super spreader events just as they did the first time around 
Um, and in fact, we're seeing it in Austria right now. There's a huge outbreak, 234 cases yesterday in total, um, who, who have the South African variant. Austria is not on the red list. It will get added to the red list, but too late, as is often the case, because government works too slowly. It reacts rather than proactively. And so, like, all of Europe should be on the red list, because we know that the virus is circulating in various parts of this continent, um, and we know that people who have been in various parts of the continent are circulating within the continent as well, and yet that's not going to be. And so it makes the whole thing ridiculous. And it's and it's and <laughs> so it's costly. It's it's very unwieldy. Um, and on top of that, it's got so many hol holes thrown into it by lobbying, rent-seeking firms, um, including airlines and so on, who, who have pushed for it to be as liberal as possible to benefit themselves, to keep themselves going, because they are themselves based in multiple countries. And so they are desperately trying to ensure that they don't end up with restrictions and, and which, well, without an ability to borrow or receive money from the governments who put the restrictions in place um, as recompense. And so they're trying to keep themselves alive. But in doing that, they're putting the lives of others at risk. And that's the exact kind of case where maybe there should be a government intervention because there is a market failure. And it's like, this is basic economics as well as basic public health uh, safety. Um, and it's a lesson we still haven't learned 12 months on from the beginning of this pandemic. I mean, I mean, ultimately, the government's going to have to make a decision, I think, to extend this quarantine program. And we haven't even actually started this yet. And uh, coming from the Australian perspective, a hotel quarantine is currently a huge, huge risk for Australia. It is where cases are being reintroduced into the community. Uh, just today in uh, Victoria, where I'm currently based in Melbourne, um, there have been some cases out of the Holiday Inn, which was used as one of the, the hotel quarantine hotels because someone used uh, some kind of a, a machine in their room that was um, designed to help them breathe, but was also spreading droplets of COVID um, into the hallways and, and into other guest rooms and in, into the, the hotel quarantine staff. And that's just one hotel quarantine case. There have been lots of others. It's, it's got to be done extremely delicately. Um, and even when it is done extremely delicately, as it is being done in Australia, there's still leaks out of the system. Uh, so this is going to be a huge challenge for the UK to, to get right. It both has to apply more broadly, and I think it will inevitably um, but it's also going to have to be operated very, very well. And, and I think as we discussed last time, that this is um, something the government hasn't necessarily proven that good at doing. Um, and is a little bit right now, it looks like it's, it's not going to be able to quite achieve it um, unless it really gets its, its stock in order and, and focuses on this as a huge, huge challenge uh, for the UK. Well, on that note, and with our fingers crossed that the government does take action against the millennial versions of Typhoid Mary in 2021, <laughs> I think it's time to finish uh, this, this week's podcast. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Daniel Pryor. I'm the head of program at the ASI. My wonderful co-host, Matthew Lesh, is our head of research, and we've been privileged to have on our deputy director, Matt Kilcoyne. If you like what you've heard and would like to hear more, then please do subscribe to us and like us on your chosen podcast provider. But until next week, uh, thank you very much for listening.